Part of being human is that we absolutely, utterly love autonomy. We love to rule our own lives. We love to govern our own lives. And we have this built-in reflex as human beings to resist authority, to resist submission, to resist being told what to do, to resist surrender of any kind. If you don't believe that, just come hang out at my house um, any given night and, uh, and watch our children um, and uh, the way that this sort of exhibits itself in the innocence of a child, to run and to do their own thing, to ignore the voice of authority in their lives, um, and, um, and not just to do it once, but to do it again and again and again and again. This is part of the way we are. Or to take an illustration from the beginning of the scripture, from Genesis chapter 3, right in the garden, right at the beginning, God in authority, Adam and Eve, a beautiful garden to tend to, to eat from, to enjoy in the presence of God. One thing they were told not to do, and that is the thing that they do to govern ourselves, to rule ourselves. This is what it, part of sort of what it means to be human. The problem is, is that the essence of Christianity, the essence of what it means to follow Jesus, which is who we are as a church, we're a group of people who are united under Jesus and want to be following him with our lives, are words like this, faith, yieldedness, surrender, trust. Those are the absolute opposite of autonomy, of ruling and governing ourselves. These, these marks of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus are, are set entirely against the grain of the default of the way that we tend to operate as humans. And this kind of trust and yieldedness and surrender And this issue of conflict between autonomy and surrender or yieldedness is where Jesus is going as he ends this sermon in Luke 6 that we've been looking at for probably seven or eight weeks now. And he's driving it home at the end here by coming to this crux issue. Autonomy, submission, what will it be? And what he means to say in Luke 6, 46 to 49 is not that we just assent to these things Um, with our minds. Jesus has been preaching some pretty stout things um, that we've been looking at over the last uh, however long. Love your enemies. Do not judge. Do not condemn. Don't cut people off out of your circle of fellowship because uh, you don't think that they're worth your time. Don't elevate yourself above everybody else around you by being that person with the log in your own eye and, and picking at the little speck in everybody else's eye. These radical things that Jesus has been teaching. We, we look at them and we think, wow, these are amazing. These are beautiful. There's something I resonate with about these things. But the point that Jesus is driving home tonight is that these are not things meant simply to be admired and looked at and awed about in our lives. To be yielded to God, to be yielded to walk by faith is not simply just to give a scent to a certain set of truths, or even to give assent to the beauty of God or of his truth or of the way of life that he sets out. Our yieldedness, our surrender, our submission to God is to be lived out in the day-to-day in life, in the decisions that we're making tonight and tomorrow and the next day. By an enlarged heart, 
by an engaged will, all of which are empowered by God himself indwelling us, living in us, and moving us to walking in a new way. So we read in Romans 1, Paul describing his purpose in his apostolic mission is to bring about what? The obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That's his purpose, to bring about obedience of faith. A walking after Jesus. And this kind of um, submission, yieldedness that involves the heart and the will leads to a transformation in our lives today and tomorrow. It leads to actual change. Not in our own strength, of course, but by the power of God working in us, by the Holy Spirit indwelling us and moving in us and enabling us to act out what is now true about who we are. But that all runs contrary to our resistance of authority in life. So Jesus, in verse 46, addresses the problem head on as he closes out his sermon. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. See, he's no, he knows that a lot of the crowd is gathered around him. Verse 18, chapter 6. They gathered around. They were being healed. They were coming. And it wasn't yet certain what kind of followers these people would be. And he's given them this, this um, astounding picture of a world turned upside down. Remember the Beatitudes and the woes. Blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. All the opposite things that we would expect to be blessed. Jesus blesses. All the things we're chasing after. He says, woe to those things. And then he sets out this course of the life in the kingdom of God under his rule and under his reign. And people are probably pretty excited about this at one level. They're probably pretty taken back by it at another level. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's kind of a preemptive strike of a way to respond to what he's had to say. See, Lord, Lord, that's a term of allegiance. That's a term of submission. That's a term of authority. So why do you use that term? And then walk away and not do what I tell you. It's absurd. It's inconsistent. It doesn't fit with the claim. So Jesus isn't alone in this kind of um, more prophetic voice and attack in a sense or challenge to the people of God the Old Testament prophets did this many times Isaiah 29 quoted in Mark 7 this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me or Jeremiah 7 where the people repeat this phrase the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord As in, we've got God here and he's on our side. But they go out and they live in wickedness and unrighteousness and doing their own thing and oppressing the poor and and taking things that are not their own. And the message of the prophet is, don't trust in these vain words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, our lips do the heavy lifting, don't they? Our mouths do the heavy lifting. We, We sing and we proclaim and we 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 say, Lord, Lord, we 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 profess our allegiance. But our hearts and our wills and our tongues and our lives belie the confession. They can show something different. That we, in fact, though we say, Lord, do not walk in accordance with his teaching. But we kind of maintain the sense of autonomy, of self-governing, of self-rule. 
Why would that be the case? Why would we claim him? Why would our lips do the big thing and our lives run so empty? I want to suggest to you that that one of the main reasons, there are many, but one of the ones that I would like to focus on here tonight is that the space that we have carved out in a modern 21st, and this isn't just a 21st century problem, I recognize, but I'm speaking in a 21st century context. The space that we have carved out for our Christian lives is, is relatively minimal. It's relatively uh, neat and tidy and, and kept in a certain area or sphere of life. The space in fact, is far too small for what God is asking of his people, for how God is moving and calling and directing us as his people. So that instead of actually defining or being the lens through which we see everything else, our Christian life can, uh, and our following of Jesus can kind of get, get pinned down into this very tame, manageable part of our life and existence. In other words, it becomes just an add-on, just a capstone to the rest of life, which is determined by other forces, other factors, other issues, other driving, driving urges and desires in our life. It has so little influence. You know, I think um, if one were to compare a Western culture with maybe one of the Eastern cultures, we would see a rebuke just in that comparison of the extent to which our faith in Jesus actually shapes and drives our day-to-day. And those of you who have traveled, and perhaps in places like India, would understand that this is the case, that, that so much more of life is shaped and colored by their religious commitment. But for us, it gets kind of consigned to this, this um, side, side alley, so to speak. And we get shaped by everything else in the world around us so that we can walk through life and we can admire we can admire Jesus we can um, sing to Jesus we can call him Lord and Lord again and again and we can give our assent but we don't ever surrender we claim him with our mouths but our wills and our minds can remain just as unengaged, unsubmitted, just as autonomous as they ever were. This is our compromise. Our compromise. We say that we follow Jesus, but we pursue the world. The difference of where we spend our time, our energy, our efforts, our attention. Not what we say, but where our heart resides. Lewis, who always, C.S. Lewis, who always says things so well, said this. Jesus never talked vague, idealistic gas. When he said, be perfect, which is part of the Matthew version of the same sermon, or be merciful, or love your enemies, or do not judge, do not condemn. When he said these things, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. 
The compromise that we're all hankering after is in fact so much harder. No, he says it's actually even impossible. Instead of going in for the full treatment, we like to stay in control. We like to hold back those parts of our lives that are most significant, most deep, most defining, and hold them in our own grasp while giving to God the things that are on the periphery. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? When this is our course, when we walk this path, there will be no comprehensive transformation. We talked over the last several weeks about just how radical, just how countercultural, just how unbelievable these things that Jesus calls his people to really are. They contrast at every point with our default revenge, judgment, self elevation. Those are our defaults. They contrast with those things. So as we pursue this kind of half-hearted compromise, as we consign Jesus to this little sphere of our world, there's no way that we'll ever walk along this path to transformation, which is all that God is interested in. There's no way to resist revenge or judgment or a nitpicky life of self-elevation. In other words, the half-hearted pursuit of Jesus is in fact no pursuit at all. And this is why. Because it's pursuing Jesus on our own terms. In our own way. For our own ends. And that is not pursuing Jesus. That is not coming under authority. That is not yielding. That is not surrendering. That is not faith. That is not trust. That's self-governance at its core. And all those things being said, verse 46, Jesus then makes the point a little bit harder and further and more uh, illustrates it a little clearer for us and says, you know, and actually, it's not just inconsistent. It's not just folly, but it leads nowhere. It leads nowhere. And so he gives us this picture Um, You all, probably most of you, are familiar at some level with this picture of the two builders. The one who builds on a rock, storms come, house stands. The one who builds on the field, storms come, the house drifts away. The ruin of that house is great. So Jesus says, he paints for us this picture in verses 47 through 49 of the compromised on the one hand versus the surrendered on the other hand. And says, look at the end of these two ways. Look at the end of the ways of response to me. You see, the storm that comes reveals that all along, all along, we've been standing on our own two feet. That we've been standing on our understanding or our wealth or our knowledge or our strength or our guidance. When the storms hit, The foundation is revealed, or the lack thereof. When we pursue both the world and we pursue Jesus at the same time, we are, according to James 1, we're a double-minded man or woman. And he describes the double-minded man unstable, unstable in all his ways. You hear the echoes here to this picture of, of a house rooted deep on the rock. 
And so we fall when the, when the storms come. And the interesting thing is the storms come in both situations. The storms come in the life that we live. And we fall. We have no foundation. Or alternatively, we just cut that part of ourselves off. We just kind of deny something deep within us. When things get hard, when something doesn't go right, when, when the storms come, we just sort of cut, a thing, a, cut something in our hearts off. We lock it up, we throw away the key, and we move on a little bit number, a little bit uh, stubborn, more stubborn, a little hard, hard, more hard-hearted. And we move forward in that way to a tragic end. Proverbs 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. A way that seems right. On the other hand, there are those who hear. The difference between the builders is not that they hear. They all hear. They all hear Jesus' words. They all say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. But the difference of the wise builders is that they hear and they do He says, he hears my words and does them. Standing firm. There's a substance there. There's a life there. There's a rootedness there. There's something to be reckoned with there that endures to the end. Many of you know I used to work in the the outdoor industry. We used to do a lot of rafting in Browns Canyon. As you go through the canyon, there was a rock that we'd point out with a little tree. We call it bonsai tree or bonsai rock. And there's this little tiny tree, evergreen tree, it looks like a bonsai tree, but it's a natural tree. And it's, it's, sit, it's sitting there on this rock. And I don't know exactly how that works. Um, the analogy breaks down at some point if you think about how deep the roots must go. They can't go that far. But the picture is great. Because there have been storms, there have been high water seasons when the waters just poured through that canyon and covered over that rock. And that little tree was always there, standing and firm. And that's the picture that Jesus gives here in a different kind of way. This is the picture of one who's not compromising. Who's not pursuing the world at the same time that he or she is pursuing Jesus. But who's yielding and surrendering and obeying. Not just in the small parts, not just on the periphery of my life, but deep down in the heart, in the center of who I am. Following after Jesus. Yielding myself to Jesus. Giving myself to Jesus. There is no more duality in the person that Jesus describes. There's no me, in other words. There is no me. There's no Mark Booker outside of God. I'm not hedging my bets anymore. There's there's no dual track here so that if God lets me down, at least I've got something else to stand on. That's no longer a part, but everything has been lost for the sake of Christ. I surrender. I give it up. And I move. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What are the keys to to not falling into that camp as the people of God? I want to say the first thing is is repentance. This is maybe a a good pre-Lenten message to getting us into the Lenten season where we take a look at our lives and we come to a place again of repentance and we ask God to reveal to us those areas of our heart where we're not pursuing him, where we haven't let go, where we haven't yielded. We pray for his spirit to illumine those places in us so that we can lay them down before God 
and give them over to him again. So it starts with a repentance. But let me ask the question, what breaks the resistance of our um, quest for autonomy? Our, our, what breaks our autonomous spirit? It's love. It's love. Right? You don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to give over my will to someone else. But when that person has demonstrated a self-sacrificial interest in my well-being, when that person has demonstrated that they care much more about me than I could ever care about myself, when that person has gone to great lengths to meet my deepest yearnings and desires, yeah, I'll surrender. I'll lay it down. I'll yield. I'll give myself to a person like that. It's this kind of love that burns at the heart, at the center of who God is. God is love. At the center of this whole thing about Christianity. It's not just about submission. It's not just about coming under authority. It's not just about those things. Those things are very much a part of them. But it's about love. And love is the only power in the world to break that spirit in you that wants to live life in your own way that wants to pursue the world at the same time that you give lip service to God. It's only love that will break you in me and lead us to surrender everything. There's a great line in that hymn that we sing sometimes, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the last line. I don't know why, but I can remember singing this hymn in 1997 in South Africa in a Dutch Reformed church in Cape Town. When this song, and I just like that moment stands out to me, but the end of that song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's love that makes the demand. It's love that cries out to you to submit. It's love that leads you to this place of obedience, of coming under the authority. Do you know that you're loved? You know, if this is an area where you say, you know, I'm thinking that I actually am pursuing the world pretty hard in my life. You know, I think I've given lip service to Jesus for a long time, but there's parts of me that I'm just not giving up. I just enjoy these things too much. I'm just enjoying fill in the blank. Do you know, do you know the love of God for you? Do you know that love that that leads you to a place of letting all of those resistance, all of your resistance go. Letting it go. That love is reinforced by this desire that we have for life. So Jesus appeals to that human desire that every one of us has to live life and to have it in the fullest. That's what what the picture that he paints is. He says, you know, if you want to have a life that lasts a life that withstands the storms, a life that remains rooted in the rock and doesn't just get washed away. If you want to avoid that kind of heartache, that kind of emptiness, that kind of numbness, that kind of uh, pain, then take up this way. You see, Jesus, when he speaks these words in this sermon, isn't speaking just as one teacher among many, but he's speaking as the creator of the world. 
And God created the world in a certain way. And wisdom is simply beginning to live in a way that resonates, that is um, in harmony with the way that God has made the world. So you desire life. You desire it in the fullest. Well, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of what? Of life. So as his love on the cross appeals to us to surrender, so also does this argument of wisdom that Jesus gives at the end of the sermon. You want to live. You want to know life in the fullest. Come, follow me. Take up my ways. Walk in my path. Take up the cross. The bottom line is that the games that the world teaches us to play do not work. If you watch the social network, you see that at the end of, you know, sorry if I give it away for you, but you know, at the end, Zuckerberg is is sort of back to the same game. Now, I don't know if this is true to reality, but but it's it's the the point is is really, it's it's really um, palpable in a sense. After riding this incredible movement of, of money and fortune and creativity, that the yearning has not been met. The, 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 the games that the world teaches us to play never work. They never deliver. Jesus says, I want you to have life. I've come that you could have it to the fullest. And that life comes by being conquered by his love, laying down our will at the foot of the cross and saying, there is no me apart from you. I have no good apart from you. You are my treasure. You are my hope. You are my life. And I'm ready to follow you. It's that kind of attachment, that kind of zeal, that kind of of heart that's been enlarged by God and indwelled by the Spirit. It's only that kind that when the moment comes tomorrow and you're crossed by somebody in your office, that you can respond in love. That you can respond in mercy. It's only by those who've been conquered by this love, who know this way of wisdom, who are walking this way of the cross, which is the way of life.